it's not enough to not be racist, you have to be anti-racist. Right, <clears throat> so we'll do the intro and then uh, we'll fire away. Cool. <clears throat> All right, um, hi guys, welcome to Impala Sessions. This is Maud. Taff. And we've got Ruth here. Um, today's topic is going to be the right uh, to freedom of, spe of speech uh, versus hate crime. Uh, with particular focus on the Black Lives Movement. Um, Ruth, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, hi, um, I'm Ruth Strachan. I'm a journalist in London, um, but currently, you know, speaking from my personal opinion, I feel like I have to put that in as a disclaimer. <laughs> um, and I met Maud randomly um, in the like outdoor area of our flat. We both happened to be moving out around the same time. And we fell into a really deep discussion about the Black Lives Matter movement in literally a matter of 10 minutes. And I think that highlights how prevalent this discussion is to the fact that we had never met and we ended up getting into really deep issues within 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, just shows how current these topics are and how important they are um, to sort of be able to dive into. And that's how we met and that's why I'm here to hopefully do it again. <laughs> Nice one, Ruth. Well, welcome to Impala Sessions. We're really, really um, excited to have you on board and we're excited that you were excited about this topic and it's important for uh, you as a person who's white um, to join in this conversation and get your perspective on this and us being uh, black as well from an um, African heritage. Uh, whilst being brought up in the UK, we can kind of uh, bring in our opinions and our perspectives together um, on this topic and see where it goes. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think um, we were saying before, and I just think I should give a disclaimer to the listeners as well, that I'm nervous to do this podcast. <laughs> and part of that is because you know, I've never done a podcast before. But the other part of that is the weight of the topic of Black Lives Matter and what it means to be a white voice in that space. Because part of me thinks um, it's important to give a platform to BAME voices and that why should my voice matter as a white person in this issue? But the other part of me thinks it's so important to be an ally. But how do you do that um, without virtue signaling and without coming in as a voice of authority or even you know as some people have said as a social media post without much meaning behind it how do you do that where the, where you add value to the conversation and not take away anyone else's volume in the conversation so that's why i'm a little nervous about this but it's also why i think it's really important to do things like this as a white voice in the black lives matter movement yeah, well, I think, well, I think you've done completely the right thing. It, just from my perspective, I think it's better to uh, be an ally in some sort of way rather than be ignorant and stay silent yeah. when, you know, this is something that's been building up for, you know, a lot, a lot of years and something that's going to affect our future generations. Um, so when we look back in history, you know, you probably you you will look back and say you were on the right side of history rather than you stayed silent and you didn't do anything about it um considering what's what has happened recently and what's going on <clears throat> yeah a hundred percent and i think as well we were speaking earlier about it but and this has been a common thread throughout the blm movement but it's 
um, it's not enough not to be racist. You have to be anti-racist. You have to call out injustices as you see them. You have to use your voice um, to have those uncomfortable discussions um, in the spaces that you inhabit. And I think regardless of ethnicity, that's something that we should all be carrying um, whilst there's these injustices. Yeah. 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 And like you said, previously that you were talking to people at work like th- um, about this topic and that's how mm-hmm. it starts you know conversation from this person to this person it's all about learning and getting to know like it's the more that you discuss things the more that you broaden your view of basically what this movement means and how, the impact of it on black people um yeah yeah what do you think yeah and that is I think that's what a good ally is and also recognizing that as a white person ultimately you guys have a lot more power so for the people like you to use your power in a positive Mm. way to listen and then actually actively engage in conversations with other people it it's um it's very impactful and sometimes can be a lot more impactful than you think because you yeah I think and that was a really good point as well about um realizing like how impactful your voice can be because I think that's a big problem I see with a lot of people like in my demographic is that they don't really realize the power that they actually have and they think well you know I don't want to be controversial or I don't want to I don't really get into politics or that's not really for me and I'm just here to post pictures of my dog and you know you know for some people I guess it's fine to post pictures with your dog but I also think there's a lot of people that live in ignorance of what their voice actually means to a movement um, and what it could mean and even what their ear could mean like are you listening to the right people are you getting your news sources from you know credible places yeah are you questioning you know the post that you see someone reposting that sort of adding a narrative to a discussion are you questioning where that's coming from and why they've posted it and which side is that feeding you know um i think so many people are passive about the power of their own voice their own opinion and at the end of the day you know it's it's these small tiny movements that add up to the bigger movement overall Um, and i think too many people don't engage with the conversation and that's true of a lot of problems and um, but I see it a lot with BLM and as you said Maud some people will then make their assumption that th- that doesn't matter to them or that you know they they can sort of see which side they lie on when is really how do we engage those people that it's again comes back to the I'm not racist that's yeah. not enough anymore like how yeah. do we engage you in a way that doesn't feel aggressive because you're right that there's a lot of anger um surrounding the movement and a lot of tension and it's almost become it and it's sad to see it happen but it's almost become clickbaity in a way when you think yeah, about um, the diversity performance on britain's got talent or alicia dixon's necklace promoting yeah. the movement that then became you know tabloid fodder with people speaking about the ofcom complaints and then it creates um arguments in the comments section and it's a shame because it it becomes less than what the movement is as a whole and people just feel entitled to be outraged yeah and i think the other side of that highlighting the diversity performance the fact that there were that many ofcom complaints kind of uh 
highlighted an underlining problem within our population the fact that a certain that amount of people had a problem with it you know that just means a lot of people are not saying anything but they have a problem with this whole black lives matter movement so it's, it's that british thing of like you know we what i don't i won't say it but they're really polite mm. your face but they may feel some other way and that was quite scary um the fact that that's that many people had a problem with it because really um i i've started to wonder so does my next door neighbor then mean they have a problem with black lives movement or what does it actually mean because i i from my perspective of course i did not think there was anything wrong with that performance or that necklace but why those people think that there was something wrong enough to complain to ofcom about it yeah i think it wasn't just it's not just like things like ofcom when people can complain to other people who they assume are white or who are like who are in agreement with them that Black Lives Matter is not as big of an issue as we say it is. It was more when people felt they're anonymous, the things they would then go and say. Like if you read an email and you look at the comments, the things that people are then willing to say is a lot more shocking because if, you know, if that's what you really think, that's very scary as a black person. Um, And like you said, people are getting angry and it's on both sides. And I think as a black person, when you see that, you start to think, when people do get angry what is going to be the consequence of that yeah i mean we saw a glimpse of it or when there was those anti-black lives matter protests um in london things like that are just glimpses right of what could become um and it only take just one thing you know maybe like uh, what's like one political issue i was reading somewhere that uh, for example if um there's, that, there's a lot of news about the amount of immigrants here da, 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 that increases racism. It could only take just one little thing that could spark up, you know, a lot of protests and a lot of outrage. So it's quite worrying. Yeah. Yeah. I think as well, you know, speaking about the complaints again um, surrounding this, I just find it hard to believe that people connect the dots of how that makes a community feel. Yeah. When you call not wanting to see um, sort of a, a homage paid to George Floyd in mainstream media, why is that? And it makes me wonder if for some people, the weight of the conversation, they view it as, you know, oh, well, this is a family show. They should, they should yeah. just be, you know, dancing to Skrillex and <laughs> there should be a confetti cannon and I don't want any heavy moral dilemmas with my Saturday night television. Yeah. Um, and it makes me wonder why people shy away from the weight of those conversations. And, and you're right in asking, you know, it makes you question how they view that community and yeah. how, they, how they approach these discussions or why do they not approach these discussions? And why are they actively offended when others want to draw attention to it? Why does that offend you? I find that really difficult to connect those yeah. dots. Um, and I think you're right. I think a lot of people will be very quick to say, well, I'm not racist. I just didn't want to see, you know, such a dark thing shown on television. But then I just think you need to pick, pick a little bit more at that tapestry and ask, why can't you carry the weight of this conversation? Or why do you feel it's not an important conversation to be having as a nation? Yeah. And can you appreciate how that will make that community feel? you're essentially saying that you don't want to see this, you want to remain ignorant and you don't want to join the conversation, but they don't ever take it that step further to think, 
how that makes people feel and yeah. what that means for furthering, in my view, an important movement. Um, yeah. And I think people will cling to ignorance far too much in it. And, you know, with people, a lot of the time they don't want to be educated on the topic because they don't want to carry the weight of the conversation. Yeah. And yeah, I, I question how we get around that. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. And it goes back to the point, it's just an uncomfortable topic. It shouldn't be, but it's still an uncomfortable topic. And also it highlights the fact that there's actually not enough research or there's not enough resources have been put in terms of research on how we can overcome this. And not enough has been done from the top in terms of policy change reform or anything on this matter. There's, you know, little bits here and there about um you know what's the what's the um is it an act where the the equality act you know little things like that are in place but they're not enough for the moment i think really the people at the top really need to start doing something um about in terms of black lives movement and actually putting things in steps that's that's that will actually make a real change without policy or reform or anything like that really nothing is going to happen at all I don't really see anything much changing without support from the top. Yeah. And it goes back to decide, the idea that ultimately it is down to the very people who don't want to engage to engage because, you know, despite what media, like the media will tell you or what like governments will tell you, we only make mm-hmm. up a small bit of the population. Yeah. So mm-hmm. any change that's going to happen really does have to come from governments and governments providing education and providing a space for people to talk about it and have us and i think one of the things is that people don't necessarily have a space to talk about it where they might say something wrong because mm. i understand if you know if i was in that position and i did want to engage i wouldn't necessarily want to go to my black friend and then say something offensive yeah. and then now <clears throat> i feel like you know i've come across as a racist when my intention was to just learn and it's not up to black people to be that space it is ultimately up to governments and up to um like bigger organizations to provide those spaces um and provide that education yeah yeah i completely agree and actually i'd be interested to know sort of if as a black person you've ever felt a responsibility to be the educator um and to sort of provide that information because you know you were saying it's not up to black people to teach you about these things but then obviously there's the pressure and responsibility that you must feel yeah it does i think nine times out of ten it does fall on the black person and i think it's a, like a something that would need to be addressed from a, from a multidisciplinary point of view because if you link it in psychology there's that you know that study that was done age like you know back in the day um where if you're anonymous or if you're part of a crowd, you're more mm-hmm. likely to actually say what you actually think. So if you're just in your bed under your covers and you're just typing away, that there's a, a certain anonymity because you're not face to face with somebody. Um, so you you feel more confident to incite hate speech or say what you know you shouldn't be saying. So I think if we're going to approach finding the right balance requires you know, people from multiple disciplines to really um, focus on this. Yeah, and yeah, and I think agree with what you're saying, providing 
a space for education so i think also yeah making governments making sure that they are regulating these platforms are posting these things um and for people within the technology industry the yeah uh, i know they've tried but i don't think they've tried enough um at all like at all they i think they're just more focusing on the money and the amount of hits you can get um they're not really focused on the human rights implications or the global health implications of this um or people's lives if i'm being that's how i feel anyway yeah i think um there was two really great documentaries that highlighted just how powerful social media is and how unregulated it is i think it's the social dilemma and the great data yeah. hack it was called or the great leak is that yeah, is that uh, yeah i've watched both of them they're yeah. so good at like really illustrating um how they how they identify people and their views but also and possibly more terrifying how they identify people that don't particularly have strong views and then form those views in them for profit it's yeah. it's really scary and you're right in saying that it's not it's perhaps not down to people but i do think people can put the pressure on these technology big tech companies to say you are responsible morally and ethically for the community that you're harvesting because I would say, you know, democracy is under under threat just now. Um, yeah. And without that, how can we hope to bring these different voices together? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not something we actively as people can do. I think that directly links to kind of thinking of how technology has influenced how we use social media, because it, it has shaped a lot of this idea of council culture and um, spreading hate and like, these feelings that we do have as soon as you log on so i don't always mind because it it goes per like it's a personal thing so some people can think well i want you to come to me and i want you to ask me this because you know i want to know that my friends want to learn but then sometimes i think especially when the black lives movement matters start like the black lives matters movement started (laughs) it was (laughs) so so many (laughs) say it five times fast so many words <laughs> yeah when it started it it kind of dismissed the trauma that we felt as black people because we're constantly having to see you know you're you're seeing yourself die in a way because you know that could happen to you and right. then now your friends um you know they're messaging you they're calling you they're like, oh i want to talk about this and i want to learn about it and i think for us it doesn't affect us because we work in those spaces and we enjoy those right. conversations but if you're someone who doesn't that can be very traumatizing to constantly have to mm-hmm. go over yeah how do you think where do you think the balance is there then to have those conversations and like you said that it's a safe space and the you know the objective is to learn from each other and to sort of discuss maybe taboo subjects knowing that the respect and you know um mutual admiration is there that it's a safe space to talk about that but how do you balance having those types of conversations with putting that um i guess responsibility on your black friends to be a mouthpiece for a movement when maybe they just want to get pizza yeah (laughs) i think it's what you're doing like you go out and you do your own research like you engage by yourself it's not up to you know you see this on the news and then you call your black friend and you say oh well what can i do? <laughs> there's loads of resources on google you type it in <laughs> right you come to me to tell you um and you know if you want to have that conversation 
with your black friends because it is also an important conversation like Mal said for some people they want to know that you are engaged it's just about I guess with any sensitive conversation you can tell when your friend wants to speak about something and when when they don't want to speak about something or just asking before you ask the question like oh I want to ask you this question but mm. you know if it's too traumatizing or if it's too much for you you know I'll, I, I won't I won't continue the conversation and it's just having the same that same respect that we would have for any other type of issue like you wouldn't yeah. ask someone about death randomly because you don't know you don't know what's going on yeah. yeah 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 exactly you wouldn't go up to your friend and be like so how did you feel when you lost your grandma yeah but um you obviously being a journalist what to what extent um do you think freedom of speech has played in this whole black lives matter movement from your perspective what's mm. about oh, i think freedom of speech is such a tricky nuanced gray area because on the one hand you want freedom of speech it's a good thing people should be allowed to talk openly we don't want to live under dictators um yeah. There's a lot of scary things happening in politics just now. I mean, you just have to cast your eyes over um, the US and Russia and even the UK. There's a number of things um, that are alarming, particularly to um, BAME um, people. Yeah. And I think freedom of speech, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it's good to be able to have the freedom to share your views. On the other hand, it can, it can cast poison back at you um, and people are protected under an umbrella of, well, it's my freedom of speech too. Yeah. Um, I think from, you know, as a journalist, what I would say is really important is um, sort of being able to validate journalism and news because social media has done so much to sort of discredit really reliable and historic news resources um, I mean you just have to look at what's happening with the New York Times they just released this massive piece on um, taxes taxes Trump yeah, Trump's yeah. taxes <laughs> um, or lack thereof yeah. And the first thing he says is fake news. A lot of his, um, you know, loyal base believe him. Yeah. And then you can go on Facebook and you can see posts. And I know around the time of the Black Lives Matters protests in London, I saw a lot of um, posts that actually had images from a to Tommy Robinson protest yeah. where policemen yeah. had been attacked. Um, and people were, you know, sharing this, being like, well, we were just clapping for these people last Thursday and here they are. And I was like, well, it, that's not actually a reliable news resource. And it's really scary that there's no regulations on Facebook. Um, there's no way to authenticate that. And I think a lot of people are willing to sort of get behind uh, a source or a fake fact mm. if it feeds into the narrative that they want to put forward yeah um, and that's under the guise of well it's my everyone's right to their own opinion I agree with that up to a point but I also think it should be healthy to have a your opinions qu called into question and I say that for myself as well I think it's important to listen to all sides but also to have to have some sort of <laughs> 
answerable authority as to whether or not the news that you're reciting and basing your opinions on is actually true. Yeah. And I think too many people don't give that much thought and too many people um, are quick to just sit to go for the narrative that they want. And you see that with the Trump tax thing that, you know, they don't want it to be true because it doesn't feed into their narrative and what they want to be the reality. Um, so, you know, a lot of people were saying things like, think for yourself. And I was thinking, but you're not really thinking for yourself. <laughs> if you're not willing to then look at the piece, read it in its entirety, and then also like have a basic understanding of journalistic law. If it was def defamation, you can bet your ass, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're allowed to swear, but um, <laughs> you, can bet, you can bet your dollar that, you know, they would be sued. There's so, as a journalist, you go through rigorous um, media training to know like what it's okay to say. And even like my first job was in children's magazines and I still yeah. went through the training in case I did anything mildly offensive yeah. um, or untrue. You know, if I just started spouting out opinion pieces without anything to back me up, that is a serious offense. But I think too many people don't trust their news outlets. Um, and yeah. there's also a rise in untrustworthy or in my opinion, racist news outlets. Um, I, I, to I totally agree. Um, I totally agree. Like that, uh, uh, is it Toby Robinson? That mm. with around the protest, that was, you know, a point where I kind of con considered whether freedom of speech should be censored in a way. I know like people are really against that. And, but I also thought maybe we should start looking into policing um you know policing things a bit more online because it was getting out of hand the misinformation misinterpretation was just getting out of hand and i know people who were at some of those protests and they were saying no it did not actually happen like that that is not true but they're saying it to me not all although you know with social media and technology it's already reached millions of people so mm -hmm. i'm probably like the one person who knows that that didn't happen but that's not going to change anything is it at all yeah no, I think it's scary yeah yeah that's, that's and scary. yeah and also I didn't like how the newspapers um you know I noticed it but I don't know if it's because I'm black that's why I noticed it when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening it was like you know there was a lot of headlines saying thug 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 and then when the anti-protesters were um doing the protests it was actually anti-protesters but they were a lot more violent there was nothing about thuggery or anything like that that mm. I kind of didn't didn't understand where they were coming from and it kind of things situations like that reinforce this subtle racism that exists in society and then it just builds on that underlining anger and anger and it would just build and build and I think situations like that don't really help at all and I don't understand why it still exists but I guess that's why we're having the conversation um now not obviously now but like in this no era. I I completely but, agree yeah yeah but I wonder like is it uh, subconscious do you think no I think it is subconscious but also the I think one of the issues is that now there is so much money to be made from this kind of yeah clashing of yeah. um opinions you know um for me to go out and decide i want to learn it's actually i have to actively do it because now all of the material i'm getting is tailored to whatever 
algorithm yeah whatever the algorithm decides to show me and it's the same for people um on the other side and i think for some media outlets that's kind of you know it's profitable to do that's profitable to say like thug Mm. because they know what they're doing and they know that by doing that yeah get more hits so true yeah Yeah. so true i think the word thug is i find um it highlights as well use of language and how powerful that can be because there was a documentary i watched um in lockdown at one point um and it was about uh a black teenager in the States was shot at like close range through his car window at a garage. I don't know if you heard the story. And um, the guy argued that it was a group of thugs and he was intimidated and he thought this like teenager was going to shoot him. And so he was in his right to shoot this teenager. Mm. And it was all in basically, spoiler alert, he does go to prison. Um, But he was arguing throughout the whole trial that he wasn't racist, this wasn't a racially driven attack. um, And that, you know, this absolutely broke the hearts of that community and and that boy's family. And there was other kids in the car as well. Um, It it was an absolutely devastating thing that happened. But then afterwards, the documentary goes as far as to show you the letters that this guy who was um, charged with the murder letters that he was sending to his wife on the outside and they were filled with horrendously racist um comments and he was using the word thug a lot in the documentary i'm going to find the name for you because it was a really good documentary Um, the documentary spoke about how the word thug had become a replacement for the n-word and how you know that it's used as a slur now but it's not as it's not as a um I guess it doesn't get as a as quick a response. It's it, as you say, it's subtle racism. It can fly under the radar to a degree, and I think that's also really dangerous um, because it's just such a such a scary use of language. Um, and then people can argue, "Oh, but I'm not racist." However, that kid was a thug. That's really yeah. scary to yeah. like to be trying to package it as something else when it's clear to me that it's racism yeah and I, and um again there's not enough research being done on these sort of patterns of why we associate thug with like black people etc etc mm. more resources needs to be put in that and i also think some of it is actually subconscious because of your environment the way that you brought up the school that you went to and i don't actually think white people sometimes actually mean to be racist or mm-hmm. if realize they're being racist, they have no intention at all of being racist, mm-hmm. but then you are being racist like at times. And it's just finding that right balance of somebody's being intentionally racist or they literally just don't even know. Because some of my friends literally just don't even know. And I've realized it's because of their upbringing, their, you know, where, where they went to school what they view what they're exposed to on a daily basis and it's actually really not their fault but we've got to put enough resources in that to educate really raise awareness and do more research around this area yeah yeah i think but i i don't know if it's if it's to frame it like you don't know you're being racist because i think Mm -hmm. within the world that we live in now i think everyone is perfectly aware what they mean when they say thug they mean black they might not want to say it to you verbally because why wouldn't you use another word you would why is it that everyone is thinking of the word 
like but, that particular word it, instead of other words that you might then like you know you there would be like there would be a, a wider vocabulary of words to describe back mm. but the fact that it's one particular word it links it back to saying the n-word you knew what you were saying um and you knew the power of what you were saying but what i i think white people i agree i don't i think white people don't understand the impact no not the impact but they don't necessarily understand like nuance yeah the nuance yeah yeah okay i think as well like that's something when i got really still during this lockdown when all these protests were happening and i was trying to sort of hold a mirror up to my own behavior my own upbringing my Mm. own privilege I, i can point to times that make me feel uncomfortable now and i question myself of was that a microaggression things like um making a big deal if my black friend got braids saying oh my god it looks amazing that kind of thing because in my head i would say well that's positive and i would make a big deal if you know sally dyed her hair blonde (laughs) but by the same token it could also be viewed as a microaggression Um, and i think going through that education has been really valuable because and that's what's lacking from a lot of these spaces now these news resources these social media sites is just empathy like yeah. just having empathy and also just being like listening L- just listen to someone's experience you don't have to agree with it but at least take it on as their experience because that's how they feel and so many people just don't do that and don't think about it and as well I think you can do racist things and not be a racist, but you have to acknowledge that because change won't come if you're too scared to admit admit any guilt or admit any responsibility in the system, then change can't happen. But I think as well, a lot of these things that we're discussing in sort of blue sky thinking about how we'd like them to be solved are really big um, government global issues. when in fact, what I found really helpful, and those are important, don't get me wrong, but what I found really helpful is at the height of um, Black Lives Matter on social media and pandemic and Brexit and all of this noise that was on social media, like I said, I decided I would get really still and quiet and listen and educate myself. So I actually took myself off of Facebook and Instagram because I did find it. I found it a scary place to be. And I also found it not a productive place. I ended up getting into arguments with people about Black Lives Matter. And I realized that, first of all, I wasn't um, gaining anything from those discussions. I didn't feel like I was actually talking to any of these people. I felt like it was just shouting into a void. Um, And then the people that are on your team will go, yeah, well done. And the people that are not on your team will go, shut up. And it's no one's, no one's actually gaining anything from that. And since then, I've not been back on Instagram and Facebook. Um, And my point in that is that, you know, all these big issues go on. It can make you feel um, helpless, small, powerless. Like there's nothing that you can do. But if you actually shut the laptop and your eyes and have a look around you there's a number of things that you can do in your direct life that all lead to a good movement towards a better cause of of the things that you believe in and it can be just so much as supporting a black author and and reading their book detailing what their experience was like and then the next time you're at the dinner table 
and someone says something, you can pick them up on it yeah. um, and have a discussion face to face and listen to what they're telling you because otherwise I don't think there's much to be gained um, from having screaming matches and from the noise on social media. And although I think social media is really powerful, I think it can be just as powerful to take these discussions and these movements to a local level. And it's okay to just have that in your day-to-day -day life yeah. and to just make sure that you're doing everything you can in your immediate vicinity to sort of stay educated, stay alert and be a force for good. Yeah. Yeah, so true. Definitely, yeah. And there are a lot more smaller organisations doing work who probably are doing a lot more impactful work, like you say, because it is within your own community and people know each other and they potentially have more of that space, safe space to kind of, you know, make mistakes and then learn from them, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes the social media it has a way of um, intensifying topics such as the black lives matter movement like in you think you hit it on the nail that is it's not always productive um like at all sometimes you just need to sit back and see what you can actually do um outside of that yeah so um what other conversations have you had um in terms of black lives matter movement or what other insights have you had in terms of Black Lives Movement, but uh, Black Lives Matter movement and freedom of speech? I think um, one of the most alarming things that I was privy to was a friend of mine um, ended up having a really heated argument on their work WhatsApp to the point that they decided to leave the company. Oh, God. Um, because they basically were saying all lives matter and they weren't willing to be educated and my friend was trying to give them documentaries to watch articles to read um he was trying to sort of illustrate why um his views were racist and they were extreme it was probably the most extreme racism i've ever um seen in, in yeah. my life in this chat like the thing the uh, generalisms he was saying um the things he was saying about black people as a group it was really offensive and my friend was obviously getting really upset yeah um, and he was saying i don't want to watch that documentary i don't want to read that blah 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 um and i think that really highlighted to me how close the problem was mm -hmm. how close and how much people i think a lot of people don't believe that there's racist people yeah. I, I think a lot of people don't believe that there's a problem. Um, I think a lot of people think it's just in America um, or that, you know, these are, it's glamorized, or, well, glamorized is not the right word, but it's built up in mm. a press um, and that it doesn't really touch their spheres. Um, and I think that's a huge problem. Yeah. And that's as well, it goes back to what I was saying about people being um, willfully ignorant. A lot of people want to say, you know, hashtag all lives matter, but then they don't want to have the discussion as to why that has racist connotations. Mm. Um, and I find that frustrating. And again, that's a problem with social media in that, like, I feel if someone was to say that in person, 
it would be easier to have that discussion without there being anger or without there being tension. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, social media is useful because they may never say that in front of you as a person. A lot of people, as you're saying, that on anonymity, <laughs> being anonymous, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess gives people the, I don't know what the right word would be, confidence, the yeah. goal to say things that they would never say in a public setting. So the conversations, it's a, it's a catch-22 because on the one hand, I feel like I'm more productive and more useful off of arguments on social media. But on the other hand, that's a space where it's happening. So again, that's another question for how do you balance that? Um, and I don't think I've found the answer just yet, but I think just picking up that thread is, is a useful use of time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from like my perspective, like you said, it's not as drastic as it is in America, but I think here it's a lot, it's a lot more subtle and it's not as out there as it is in America. Like I'm, you know, I'm not going to walk down the street and a police uh, man shoots me. But when you enter, for example, the workplace or the school space, that is definitely exists, but it's not just as, um, as it's the word over, it's not out there. It's not mm. in your face at all. It's just, mm. oh, okay. Um, We'll keep, let's just, you know, hide that under the rug and not talk about it, but it still exists kind of thing. And things like um, the fact that there's not really much research on uh, the BAME uh, sector of things. Like, for example, what came out of COVID, um, the fact that there really wasn't much research on BAME. And even at one point, Matt, Matt Hancock asked, you know, so how many BAME people have you got in your, um, in your cabinet? And he was just there like, oh, um, yeah, we do have brown people, uh, such as da, da, da. You know, things like that. I just think like, they're not as aggressive as America, but they're just there. It's just more polite. Yeah, but yeah, I think it's, it's yeah, it, it is. I do think it's actually is, is, it is as aggressive, but in very different ways because the systems are very different, so, like, the UK is a class-based system mm -hmm. and the fact that the majority of like the lower classes are black that just shows just how significant the issue is and you you still do get you know um violence agreed I think um just when we were speaking about statistics um I was thinking about you guys and how you want to sort of target students and and definitely start, sort of start this education as young as possible I guess and yeah. what kind of voices are there to educate and I came across a statistic that this was in 2019 and it was a study by Dr Nicola Rollick um, and it says that there are only 25 black female professors in the UK and that makes up 0.1% of all professors. White men make up two-thirds, 68% of um, UK university professors and in contrast, there are 4,000 white female professors in these institu institutions, which is about 6%, um, which means that you're three times more likely to be a professor if you're a white woman compared to being a black woman. And I think, you know, some people, I, I think it's really irritating when you read statistics like that because yeah. 
to me, that's clear there's a problem. There's a problem with opportunity. There's a problem with who is educating. There's a problem with which voices are being given platforms. But then a lot of people would argue, oh, but that's, that's just because, you know, what if they didn't want to be professors kind of thing. And they come up with these bizarre, pure arguments. Yeah, but that's, that also goes to your upbringing, your surrounding. If you're not offered those opportunities to be able to get there, or if what's presented to you growing up is you can make it, you are capable of being a professor. It's not just your white counterpart who's able to be a professor. Uh, then you know that would change that narrative it is there's a lot of factors involved from the time that you're born that mm -hmm. would lead up to that and like like i said i think that's where you know people from up top come in and start you know instilling that i know a lot of initiatives have been um brought forward recently but there's a long line to go agreed okay so um yeah, so we're just going to do some final opinions looking at the time. Okay, uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, so we can just do some final opinions. Uh, Taf, do you want to start? Yep. Um, final opinions, I would say... Yeah, one last final opinion is just to listen more. Listen more and then act. Um, yeah act after you've listened <laughs> yeah and i would say probably people should take more responsibility and take action uh and not be so quiet and also i just think there should be more pressure on the government and people in power and people who have a voice to do something about this yeah ruth i get a final opinion yeah. um <laughs> So mine would probably be to recognize your privilege, to use your voice and platform to the ability that you have. Um, and also I would call for more empathy and more conversations that don't start in an aggressive tone. Mm. Um, I think it's really important for a movement to move forward that there has to be listening on both sides. Um, and I think, you know, it's, I'd like to see less passive um, non-racists and more active anti-racists. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, well, that wraps up this uh, podcast. Uh, thank you, Ruth, for everything and your time. We really appreciate it. Um, and hopefully we'll have you back at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. <laughs>